Ellen, welcome to The Public Diplomat, episode 11, with a special guest today, Dean Freeland from the University of North Carolina. Dean, how's it going? Pretty good, thank you. All right, perfect. Welcome to the show. Excited to have you here. Dean, I've known you for a long time. Uh, back when I got to know you first, there was no social media. Is that true? Um, it's true. It's crazy. I feel maybe, like, I, I feel maybe like MySpace. My, well, Facebook started in 2003. So, and then I guess, honestly, I don't know whether your users will know about like Usenet. I consider that social media personally, but I, I know a lot of people don't, but I do. There we go. Usenet, Friendster, MySpace, old school. Remember those good old days? When social media first came out, there seemed to be a promise that social media platforms may empower ordinary people to get involved in politics and therefore empowering the citizens. What do you think about the promise of social media? What, can, you, can you think about the original promise and how we lived up to it? Can, can I answer your question with a question? My question is, uh -huh. who made that promise? Who made that promise? Because I, uh -huh. I, I don't think the social media companies did. I think that may have been, uh, well, I want to know what you think, but personally, what I remember from what you just said was there were some academics who said some things to that effect. There may have been like some like journalists and alt academic adjacent people who said some things like that. But I don't remember the companies themselves going there that hard personally. Yeah, I, I think it was uh, in the um, in the tech community, in, yeah. the, in the mainstream news media, a um, couple of early geeks who were into it. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, yeah, totally get all that. And so I, I remember that. And um, I guess <laughs> it's interesting to me that you put it that way, because, uh, you know, when people make promises about things that they don't control, uh, it's an interesting situation because I guess you could consider that. I guess maybe I think of that more as a prediction than a promise. Right. So in other words, people are saying, you know, whether it's Cass Sunstein or, you know, John uh, Perry Barlow or whoever, you know, they're saying, this is what I think is going to happen based on this technology that I am not directly involved with. And I'm just sort of an outside observer of, which I think is, is kind of, kind of interesting. Uh, I think largely the conversations that were happening at the dawn of social media, I'm talking about maybe mid 2000s, late 2000, uh, 2000s, first decade of the 21st century, um, I think a lot of the more optimistic scenarios did not come to pass. But, you know, it's funny, when I talk to my graduate students and, and uh, undergrads about this period, I often talk about it in terms of being kind of split into two camps. You know, there, there were a bunch of people who thought everything was going to be great, and a bunch of people who thought everything was going to be terrible, <laughs> right? And so uh, normally when that happens, um, it ends up being somewhere in between. Uh, and I think that's exactly what we've seen. Yeah, and, and let's put a little context on it. You know, let's let's go to specific events in in the period we're talking about, early 2000s or even a little later. Think about the Arab Spring and all the conversations about, oh, this is the Twitter revolution, right? This is the Facebook revolution. It really was an Al Jazeera revolution for those who really know the story. But the idea that any citizen can take a cell phone and become a journalist and tell a story that the sources of the news, right, are no longer limited to the corporate media, 
right? And any of us can be a part of the story. We're not only in terms of viewing the story, but creating the story and disseminating the story. So that was, that was a promise, right? But as you said, it delivered in a partial way as technology, no matter what we're talking about, always does depending on the expectations. Uh, let's talk about what it did to voters. Do you see um, how social media actually realigned the voter base in America? Um, well, it's hard for me to think about it in such, you know, sort of monocausal terms, right? So in other words, I don't think that social media uh, did, quote unquote, anything on its own. I mean, one part of the problem, and I struggle to do this as a researcher of social media, is to try to see social media in context with everything else that interfaces with politics in this country, or in any, in any context, not necessarily just this one. But, you know, there's that, there's that sort of tension between trying to narrow your analytical focus in a given study to the point where you can actually do research that is interesting and says something interesting about the world uh, and not getting so lost in the details of everything that might, you know, have an influence or might uh, be relevant. Um, and that's a tough tension and one that I, I sort of struggle with uh, on the research side of my professional life. Uh, as far as voters go, I think that what uh, social media and the internet more generally, the influence that they've had is to provide a set of alternatives. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, in the pre-internet era, there were not a lot of alternatives for receiving political news. Basically you had uh, the traditional journalistic establishment, which was your local kind of monopoly papers, a couple national papers, including the New York Times and USA Today. Uh, and you had TV news uh, and, 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 and I guess radio, talk radio would be another one. Uh, and that was basically it. So I think that by expanding the range of potential uh, news and opinion uh, sources that bear on politics, uh, that really changed the game for a lot of people, especially people who felt very disillusioned by uh, what the news was providing. And a lot of those folks were on the right uh, hand side of the political spectrum. Uh, they've been hating on the traditional news media for many decades. And so when the internet gave them the possibility of being able to sidestep that completely, a lot of those folks, you know, jumped on board and never looked back. So I think that there has been a really, you know, uh, on the left, there have been other um, influences and processes, especially when it comes to protest and activism. But I think uh, on the right, you know, they've really used it as an alternative media uh, source to a much greater degree uh, than the, those on the left who typically rely on uh, legacy uh, media platforms. Well, I mean, but think about it. So we had this fragmentation, <clears throat> fragmentation of news sources and fragmentation of audience in a way, and people ultimately will go. I, I like the idea of a diet of news. And when you really think about what people select to consume, where once, you know, the Walter Cronkite audience you know, we all sit at home, we watch Walter Cronkite, we watch The Love Boat and Three's Company. Now we are watching only the kind of content that we want to watch. So, you know, as people really select content that um, reaffirms their own political biases, their own worldviews, right? We know that. How do you think selective exposure ultimately um, either augments or disempowers uh, the democracy all around the world? I mean, not just in the United States. Well, what's interesting about selective exposure is one of the uh, most interesting research findings about it over the past decade, really decade and a half, 
is that it's uh, fundamentally asymmetrical in terms of the way that it works. So it turns out people are much more attracted to attitude consistent content than they are repulsed by attitude inconsistent content. In other words, you're going to seek out things that, that are, are really congenial to your worldview, but you're not necessarily going to re recoil as much from things that are outside of your of your worldview. And so I think what that does is, you know, uh, uh, there's been a lot of research over the past couple of years um, that have really questioned this idea of an echo chamber or a filter bubble. Um, at most, it seems to apply to only the most partisan people, people that are really on the extremes of the left and the right. Uh, but most, you know, 90 some plus percent of folks uh, that occupy that, that very large middle space are going to get at least some, you know, it may be lopsided, right? In other words, it's not like 50-50, but they're going to get at least some exposure to content that is not directly congenial to their worldview. Um, and that's something that you were, you were talking about some of the early promises and predictions about what's going on. If you think about, you know, what somebody like uh, Sunstein was writing about, you know, 20 years ago, I, I know that name might not be familiar to many of your audiences, but this was a guy who predicted, one of the early, earliest predictors of echo chambers, uh, and what he described, I think, it has really not uh, come to pass largely. I think what we're seeing is people who have personalized media feeds that they've opted into uh, that is primarily or predominantly content that is ideologically friendly. Uh, but those filters are not absolute. And so they're going to get content that is from other sources, and that's going to uh, influence their thinking in some ways. But I think a lot of the, the issue uh, has to do less with exposure and more to do with the fact that it just is very difficult to change people's minds, adults. Yeah. Uh, that but, is. But, but, let's, but Dean, let's talk about the algorithms. I mean, the, the algorithms know what we'd like to watch, where we're going to spend time watching, and we know that people will spend more time with content that reaffirms the worldview than the one that challenges them, right? So there is an algorithmic component over here where Twitter or YouTube, you know, any of the social media algorithms will keep us watching, you know, exposed to content that reaffirms our mind, right? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, part of the issue is it's, it's kind of hard to have this conversation because we don't really have any direct and specific knowledge of how the algorithm works. We do have the results of studies that have done algorithmic audits where they've tried to uh, basically reverse engineer the algorithm uh, or the algorithms rather. Uh, for different social media sites and try to figure out what's recommended. Uh, I was actually just reading a study the other day that attempted to uh, reverse engineer the Twitter algorithm. And what they found was that it tended to reinforce content that uh, uh, had popularity signals that were attached to them. In other words, retweets, you know, likes and that sort of thing. But the popularity signals weren't necessarily ones that were, um, uh, that were implemented by the user themselves. Actually, interestingly, in this study, the user didn't actually, they created these bots. And the only thing the bots did was they just looked at the Twitter timeline. They didn't actually like anything. They didn't retweet anything. And so those signals were not available to the researcher to inform Twitter's algorithm. So in other words, if, if you just look at it from a consumption standpoint, when you're looking at the timeline, we uh, they were able to find out through the study that one of the things that drives algorithmic visibility is uh, popularity signals that have been contributed by other users other than the one that's looking at it. So we know that's at least one uh, input. Uh, probably there are other inputs that um, uh, are taken from the user who's viewing if they, you know, in other words, if they instructed their bots to do liking and retweeting that sort of stuff, uh, then that may have been an input as well. 
but uh, but we know that there's there's some level of uh, of distortion. They also found um, that there weren't uh, major differences between because uh, as people who are listening to this who use Twitter know, you can either choose to have kind of like the algorithmically augmented version or you, or the strict you know reverse chronological timeline version. Uh, they found there was a lot of overlap between those. It wasn't like it was totally different. There were some differences. Um, but you know, the stuff that you saw, it was really more of like a prioritization. You weren't seeing different things. It was what's front and center, what pops up right when you log in, uh, mm -hmm. what are you seeing? But, uh, everything on there is stuff that you're following. Right. So, so I, I don't think we should overstate in other words, the role of the algorithm here. I think mostly what it does is it controls, uh, visibility of stuff that is kind of there. Um, but it doesn't put things on that you didn't say that you wanted to see all the time, I guess. One, I just want to say one um, exception to that is I think when you've got algorithmic filtering turned on with Twitter, it'll show you, it'll be like, this this person that you follow also follows this person and they tweeted this, which I personally, but, find, which I personally this, find annoying, but. But Dean, this really brings it back to the fact that we are really following content from people that we follow, right? So we, we pre-select our community as source as sources of content, right? Yes, yes, yes. But, but 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 one thing I'm going to say is that um, so what's interesting is that within social media, you what you pre-select is sources, not content, right? Yes. So in other words, it, so I can pre-select the sources all I want, but but those people can put content in front of me that may not be what I, what I've selected, and that may in fact be one of the major sources of counterattitudinal content that people see. So you know, my I mean. Actually, so in my research group, I've actually built a system that allows people to kind of look at uh, their Twitter links, the links they see in their Twitter timeline, uh, and they can see it in terms of a left-right axis. So there's also a, um, a vertical axis that rates it in terms of uh, information or fact quality. But sticking straight to the left-right dimension, like when I'm looking at mine, what I see is a whole lot of stuff on the left. But, you know, I still see some things on the right, including some things that I actually consider to be relatively low information quality. So, um, so yes, it is lopsided on my uh, example. I see a whole lot of links that, that, that uh, are, are left to center. But, you know, it's not like there's nothing on the right. You know, there, there, are still, there's, there are a few dots here and there that pop up that have been shared by folks that, uh, you know, are not nominally on the right. So in other words, uh, people who uh, are following folks to generally get a particular perspective are still going to get a little bit of, I guess, leakage, in other words, uh, of content that is not on their side because they're selecting for sources and not content specifically. Yeah. Well, let, let's talk about how the traditional news media reacted to th this uh, segmentation and fragmentation of audiences. Do you agree with the notion that uh, the news media had when they looked at this fragmentation and they looked at the rating wars and they saw that Fox News was going up and CNN was going down, that they had to kind of uh, choose sides even more than they traditionally did. I mean, the traditional argument has always been that the new, traditional news media, the mainstream news media, has a left tendency all around the world, no matter what country you're looking at, pretty much. But now you see CNN and MSNBC far more to the left than they were 20 years ago. Agree, disagree. Okay, so you know it's, yeah. it's it's hard. Actually, I think you probably would know more of the empirical work on this than I would. So, um, I would really like to take a look at uh, research that does this because part of the problem is we know that from research on 
media bias is that a, a substantial portion of media bias is in your head, right? Hostile media sure. phenomenon, yeah. right? So this is like, you know, baseline 80s media research stuff where they did that study where they looked at, you know, like, a, um, I think it was like a, I don't I can't remember whether it was like an Israel-Palestine thing. I think um, Lebanon have yep. been involved. But, you know, the people that looked at it, you know, it was the exact same stuff. And, you know, people on the, the um, <clears throat> you know, the Israel side thought it was anti-Israel bias. People on the, you know, uh, the Lebanon or Arab side thought it was uh, anti-Arab bias. And it was the same thing. And so that just goes to show you that uh, at a minimum, uh, media bias is as much psychological as it is out there in the media content. So in other words, um, even though I respect you greatly as a researcher, I would not you know, necessarily take your word for it that, <laughs> that CNN and MSNBC have moved far to the left uh, on the right because we, uh, uh, the, over the past 20 years, because we know that folks on the right have been saying that you know, as sort of a propaganda type of thing for many decades. Now, what I will say is that if there was research on this that was you know, properly done and, and quantified the sort of content-based leftward you know, uh, uh, drift of these sites uh, or of these uh, uh, platforms, sites and uh, channels, that I would accept as evidence of that. And, and if you want to point me to those references, I'm, I'm happy to take a look at those. No, no problem. Uh, that's something I, that I, I, will, I will point you, I will point you to uh, another phenomenon, which is the further sig uh, fragmentation of, of uh, partisan media. So if you looked in the last three or four years, where the ratings are in the right is not necessarily in Fox News and the Wall Street Journal. You see the rise of Ben Shapiro and the Daily Wire as an alternative news source. And to an extent, you also see that on the left. We have a bunch of brand new, non-traditional media sites that are, that are news sources these days, right? So suddenly the Daily Wire is beating up not only on CNN in terms of ratings, but also on the right-wing media, on Fox News, right? So we, we see this appetite from the audience for multiple news uh, content but and sources, but not necessarily uh, balanced ones, but rather ones that reaffirm one on worldview. That's you real, see that, it on social media. Yeah, that's a really interesting question, uh, uh, point. Um, Gonna be honest with you, I don't necessarily know whether I would consider those uh, news. Uh, and that's not, you know, obviously I just said most of my timeline is on the left. So clearly I could be accused of bias, fine. I don't care, I have tenure. But, uh, you know, um, I, the reason why I say this, and I, I say this as much for the right as for the left, uh, and that is when I think of news, I think of organizations that participate in traditional journalism that is going out there breaking stories, you know, talking to people, verifying facts, doing all of that baseline journalistic work. And a lot of the outlets that you just talked about don't do that. They're basically opinion outlets. You know, they are, uh, you know, they produce politically flavored content that I would not call news and I wouldn't call it, I guess you'd call it journalism in the sense of it being opinion journalism, but it's not really news. And so- And, 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 and Dean, this is where my point is that ultimately, and this is my argument, and I would love your thoughts about it, that the fragmentation of audiences and the need for very, very tailored content that keeps people interest has not only shaped you know, social media sources, but it shaped the traditional media sources in the fact that both Fox News and CNN, as I view it, are both opinion news uh, sources.
Well, that's, to, a, that's a large extent. So, I mean, I, I absolutely agree that there are a number of people who uh, share your uh, opinion there. But I think one of the major differences between, say, a CNN or a Fox News on the one hand and, you know, a Ben Shapiro or, you know, a Joe Rogan or whoever else you want to talk about is that, you know, uh, uh, CNN and Fox News uh, produce original information about the world. They have reporters that go, they ask questions, they collect information, and they write traditional journalistic stories. And Ben Shapiro and Joe Rogan just don't do that, right? What they do is they take the raw material of the news and they talk about it. Now, I really don't want to be seen as casting any kinds of aspersions on Ben Shapiro's or Joe Rogan's talent. They're obviously very talented people, regardless of what you think about their, you know, political you know, beliefs, they have attracted large audiences, they're, you know, big media personalities, they make a lot more money than I ever will, which is what I'm totally fine with. But, you know, I think the main insight that they bring to the game is that they've realized that spouting opinions uh, a whole lot rather than generating um, sort of raw news material is both easier and more lucrative than the traditional uh, journalistic game. So from their perspective, it's a win-win. Yeah, but the argument would be that you see a lot of that on Fox News and on MSNBC as well. Right, but, 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 uh, they, but they also have news generating arms, which those other outlets I mentioned don't. Okay. Um, how about the politicians? They see the change in the voters, in the audience, they see the change in the, in the media sources, and they go on social media. And I, I don't want to necessarily talk about the tweeting president, Donald Trump, right? Um, we see this in politicians in Europe, in Asia, in South America, in Africa, all around the world. Politicians have taken to social media and they are bypassing traditional news and traditional news outlets and the gatekeepers and talking directly, not only to, to the voters of the nation, but to their particular supporters on a regular basis. What do you think about this phenomenon? Is this empowering democracy or is this hurting democracy? Yeah, well, it's something that uh, is, uh, you know, I think the the main proponent of this in the United States, everybody's familiar with Trump and his Twitter feed. Uh, I think it's really hard to talk about this situation without talking about the person who has taken it to the bank the most, probably globally. And so I think uh, really, and I'm actually trying to think about this now, maybe you can help uh, refresh my memory, is I'm trying to remember if there was anybody before Trump who really did what you describe in such a way. And I can't think of anybody who really was able to attract that much attention and to drive the news agenda via a social media account the way that Trump did. And, clear, and I think it's quite clear that in the wake of Trump, a lot of other politicians, both in the United States and outside, looked at that and said, wow, that's a really great model. I don't have to worry about the media messing my message up, You know, take it straight to the people. Uh, the supporters love it. The, the opponents hate it. Uh, you know, Let's do it. It's cheap. You know, let's move. Let's move forward with it. So I think that absolutely is something that we're seeing globally. As far as whether how, how good or bad uh, it is for uh, democracy, I think uh, there's certainly a danger there because the traditional role of the media was as referee, right? So they said, okay, well, uh, and as a filter. So the president or whoever, whatever politician, insert politician here, says X, media reports on that's the main way people find out about it. Uh, by taking the media out of that equation, it allows politicians to essentially say whatever they want uh, without any kind of 
direct fact checking that people would necessarily need to see. So they can't, obviously fact checking still occurs. They can go to that site, those sites if they want to, but you know, for a lot of folks, they're just gonna see those tweets to those messages without uh, being privy to the fact that it's half true or mostly false or whatever it is. Right. And so I think that's a big danger, yeah. So this is a really important point. So if the news media used to be the fourth estate of democracy, right, and no longer are, there is a new fourth estate of democracy, but it's not a very democratic one. And this is technology companies. And, and I wanna raise this point, it's controversial, but it's an important conversation for scholars and for people who actually care about democracy. You have a handful of executives in Silicon Valley for Twitter, for Google, for Facebook, for Amazon Web Services, who are now serving in the role that you described that once belonged to the news media. So if the traditional gatekeepers of the New York Times and Washington Post and Wall Street Journal used to kind of play a gatekeeping role in the transition of information between politicians and voters, suddenly we have a new group that nobody elected, by the way, technology executives who decide who can speak on social media and what they can speak about. And I wanna to point to specific phenomenon that I want, I, want, I want to encourage people to, if they can, move away from their own political biases and think about it from a purely academic perspective. And that is deplatforming as one. And the second is uh, the highlighting of content as uh, you know, uh, controversial or this may be biased and so on. So let's take one at a time, okay? Um, we all know the people, the argument for deplatforming Donald Trump, but there's an argument from another argument, and it's not from the other side necessarily. It's not from a political partisan point of view, but rather a question about how technology companies are deciding who can speak and who cannot. And you know, while they are free, corporate, private entities, they are in a way managers of monopolies, right? There is no other Twitter. They tried with Parler, it didn't work, right? So this <laughs> megaphone, this megaphone called Twitter, when the folks at Twitter decide to deplatform a uh, US president who was, you know, received, you know, votes from nearly hundred million people. And at the same time, they don't deplatform the leader of Hezbollah who calls on, you know, to murder, you know, innocent people, or don't deplatform the Ayatollahs, or don't, don't deplatform the Taliban. There is a real concern here for people who are concerned about the marketplace of idea and free speech. So let's talk about deplatforming. In a way, if we can remove it from Trump necessarily, and let's talk about the global phenomenon as one, and then talk about uh, misinformation. So, you, so you're asking me my, my opinion of deplatforming. So <clears throat> normally I would have very little to do with libertarians. I'm not a fan, honestly. But I, I would say this is the one area where I tend to get a little bit uh, libertarian. So I actually don't think that any social media company um, is a monopoly. And I'll, I'll give you an analogy. So most of your audience will understand the basics of the science of terrestrial radio. Right. So, you you know, back in the day, if you remember, um, like back in the 80s, you had cars that had like physical dials that you would move from whatever, like in the, in the US, it's basically like 87 point something to like 107 on the on the Hertz scale. Right. And so at every point on that dial, 
um, the station that paid the FCC license to occupy it within the given town that you lived in, like they had a monopoly on that, you know, uh, uh, piece of uh, spectrum. And the reason why they had that was because in the 30s, the FCC basically said, you know, we have to have, you know, a law that basically ensures that uh, people will sort of take stewardship of this particular piece of like spectrum real estate so that a bunch of people aren't trying to use it at once uh, to, and then it would be chaos and nobody could hear anything. So like, to me, that's a monopoly. It's a monopoly in the sense that uh, when somebody occupies that space, nobody else can have it. Social media to me is very different, right? Uh, if I wanna check Twitter out, I can do that, but I can also go to TikTok. I can go to you know Instagram. Um, Trump got deplatformed from Twitter and now there's Truth Social. You know, I have no problem with Truth Social, right? I mean, I think Trump is doing exactly what he should do, which is I'm off Twitter, so now I've got my own thing, right? And my followers can join me here and talk to me and I can say the truth is whatever I want it, you know, make it up to be. Um, and that's great, you know, right? Like Trump hasn't been silenced, you know what I mean? Like he's still out there talking, still doing his thing. Uh, his audience may not be the same, but you're not guaranteed, you know, the first time it does not guarantee you an audience. It guarantees you the right to speak unencumbered by the government. And not having a Twitter account is not an encumbrance of speech. It just isn't. Uh, I mean, like, you know, nobody's throwing Trump in jail. And, and the thing is, there are countries where people are thrown in jail for saying the wrong thing, right? Some of those countries well, are- he was, he was thrown in Twitter jail. But- Yes, right, but I mean, real jail. jail. <laughs> like, hold on. And, and some of these places, some of these places are in Europe, right? Like there are, there are anti, you know, uh, hate speech laws in places like France and the UK. And, you know, you'll get fined if you say the wrong thing. Uh, and so, so, so no, I don't, I, I think, I, I think that the platforms have every right to deplatform whoever they want. If there are certain people that are on Twitter that you feel like should be deplatformed. I mean, I, I mean, I totally agree with you. I don't think the Taliban should have, you know, carte blanche to say whatever they want, given, given what they're doing. Uh, but uh, social media companies have in the past been uh, pretty responsive to public outcry about things like uh, prob problematic speech. And so they've been able to curb a lot of the worst of it. Obviously they've still got a lot of work to do. Uh, but they have been responsive when when the public outcry has been there to to really make a change about who can um, speak on some of these platforms. Well, this this is a big deal. You know, Elon Musk is trying to trying to buy Twitter or not trying not to buy Twitter, depending on the day. But but his key argument really has been about the fact that Twitter is is an important platform for uh, democracy and for uh, our conversation as citizens about important issues. And it's not necessarily about politics. I mean, when we saw the vaccine and the whole notion that if anybody said anything about the vaccine that didn't fit the government line, automatically they were waved and they were flagged and they were thrown in Twitter or Facebook jail, or whichever platform, that is a concern for people who care about free speech. Let's talk about an area that you research and you're, I know your uh, research um, team is looking at, which is misinformation, disinformation, low quality information. Can you kind of give us a little bit of an understanding of the difference between those different terms? Sure, yeah, I just wanna, um, I, I just wanna, I'll do that in a second. I wanna return to something you just said. So sure. there's a lot of talk about free speech and I would like to make an argument. Uh, this may seem like an extremist argument. I, maybe that's a bit of a, extreme term extremist, but um, I actually do not believe that it is possible for a private entity to encumber free speech. I don't like, I don't think that's a thing. I think only the government can encumber free speech. I think that nobody is guaranteed 
a space in any private or corporate space of speech. Uh, if you're banned, that's just to say that somebody kicking you out of their house because they don't like what you say, and they should not be forced to carry your speech if they decide that that's something they don't want to do. Period. True. True. But so, hold on. But mm -hmm. but it's not like if you don't like it, go out and start your own Twitter. But that's you exactly know, what Trump did. That's exactly maybe, what Trump yeah. did. Maybe Trump can, but but you and I cannot. You, yes, but you have other places which you could sign up for free to talk, right? So that so you now now. You're not going to be guaranteed the same audience. Another thing you can do is you can start your own website. That's actually quite cheap. It's, very, it's actually it's getting cheaper by the day. There's a lot of competition, so very easy today. Oh, you know what? Squarespace offers free websites. You don't have to pay any money. Zero dollars. So point is, you can get your word out there. Now, are you going to have the same audience? No, but free speech has nothing to do with audiences. Uh, it has nothing to do with who can hear you, only with your ability to speak. So uh, I think that people need to, you know, people use this term free speech toss it around, you'll use it in all sorts of ways. So if you want to talk about having an audience, I think that's very different. But then I think you're totally outside of any sort of, uh, Amer at least in the American context, you're outside of any kind of jurisprudence because the law doesn't really have anything to say about guarantees of an audience or ways that, at least as far as I know, ways that people have been hurt by being deprived of an audience, unless there's breach of contract was a different issue. But- I see, I, um, I, we're, we're jumping away. I, I really- I have a great response, but I do want to go back to the question I asked you. Misinformation, disinformation, low quality information, and who assesses that? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's get back on track there. Um, yeah. Well, I define you know the definition of, of of disinformation that I use is well actually let's start with misinformation. So that would be uh, content that is false and damaging spread without the um, spreader's knowledge of its falsehood. So if you believe something is true and it's problematic and damaging and spread it anyway, then it's misinformation. Uh, it's disinformation if you know it's true, uh, sorry, if you know it's false rather, uh, but you spread it knowing that, that it's intended to harm uh, some individual or organization. And so that really, I think one thing that's um, insufficiently appreciated about this is that the same piece of content uh, can have a misinformation relationship to one person if they believe it, and a disinformation relationship to somebody else if That's they him. if they don't believe it, know it's false and spread it. And so, in other words, the mis and disinformation quality is not inherent to the content itself, but is rather a relationship between the person spreading it and the content itself. So that's a that's a basic definition. But but let's talk a little more about this idea of perceived um, perceived bias in relation to the quality of the information. Right? If I believe the Jets are the best team in New York City and you think the Giants, we're both going to automatically perceive each other as information, as misinformation, and disinformation. And this happens a lot in social media in terms of democratic discourse or political discourse of any sort. Well, so, hold on a second. Wait, wait, wait. wait. So now the, the, the example that you gave was quite interesting. Okay. So you said, you know, the Jets versus the Giants. I don't know anything about football. Mm -hmm. right? So, but if that's, if, if that's what you're doing, like to me, that's an opinion. And if you have an opinion, you have left the domain of facts versus falsehoods, and you have entered the domain of uh, I feel this way about something, and I, you know, you feel a different way. But well, hold um, on, now we're gonna we're gonna take this and connect it to the conversation about the news media that has really shifted away away from the objective news and towards opinion news to a large extent on both sides of the political aisle. And do you see where the issue comes? To fruition here with that concept of news um, misinformation and disinformation. Well, because but again, I th 
strictly speaking, mis and disinformation only apply to verifiable facts, right? So if exactly. I think, you know, if I think pepperoni is the best, you know, piece of topping and you think it's anchovies, right? Like the concepts of mis and disinformation don't apply to that, right? Like mm -hmm. I have an opinion about what the best piece of topping is. And so do you, our opinions differ. Mm -hmm. We can argue about it all day, but like those concepts simply don't apply. Now, so so my, my question is to when, when people talk about misinformation and disinformation, and they generally speak about uh, current affairs and sure. politics, which sure. are loaded with personal opinions, how do, and this is my question from, from a technical point of view and a practical point of view, <laughs> those who are trying to um, identify, warn, flag against misinformation, disinformation, and are concerned about its potential impact on democracy, how do they deal with it? Because a lot of the stuff is opinion. Well, if it's opinion, then I think you need to use terms that are not mis- and disinformation, right? So there, you know, but that's not the only thing, uh, you know, being false or true is not the, the only sort of question that you can ask about political content, right? So you can also ask whether political content is damaging or hateful, right? So there are lots of, so if you believe that all non-white should be kicked out of the United States, that's not really something that mis- and disinformation can necessarily be applied to. There may be some mis- and disinformation that is, that is associated with those claims, but the belief itself is an opinion. Now, mm -hmm. I think it's a hugely problematic opinion, and I think it's one that uh, should be addressed, you know, uh, at the or that could potentially be addressed at the level of uh, content moderation. But it's not properly within the domain of mis- and disinformation because it's not a verifiable fact. And I and I think most people who make that claim would or that uh, who have that opinion would not claim that it's a fact. It's, it's, it's an opinion. And I think we need to sort of keep that separate. Yeah, it, it, and it goes back to the uh, idea of people from technology companies uh, moderating political discourse. I mean, yes, it's their own private channels, but those are the highways that we all travel on. Ultimately, let's um, end with the concept of um, trust in institutions. We see over the last 20, 30 years, diminished trust in government, in politicians, in news, and, and now more and more in technology companies. Do you think social media and everything we spoke about has uh, is a part of this um, diminished trust in institutions or does uh, social, do social media platforms actually build trust by providing more transparency? Well, I think if you look at this, as far as I know, the public opinion data on trust of all institutions is, is at a, if it's not at all time though, it's pretty close. So whether we're talking about politicians, scientists, you know, mainstream legacy media, social media companies, it seems like we don't trust anybody. Ac academics. Yeah, academics. Academics. Other than, you know, I think like religious institutions in the military are like routinely you know, at, the top, at the top of those kinds of things. So aside from those folks, right, it seems like we don't trust uh, uh, many, many people out there. Um, I think that a lot of what engenders mistrust against social media companies is, as you say, the fact that they are not elected, uh, their policies are opaque, they're uh, in, uh, inconsistently enforced, uh, and everybody thinks that the social media companies are against them. Um, again, hostile hostile social media effect, right? Yeah. I just coined it. Yeah. You, you, heard there it you, go. First. you heard it here first. Um, and so I'm not really sure what they do about that. Uh, I mean, if you're really big and have a lot of power, uh, I think inherently folks are going to uh, mistrust you. I think all you can really do is try to enforce your terms of service. First of all, be very clear about what your terms of service are and try to enforce them as consistently as possible. Because at least then when people say, oh, I don't trust you, you can at least point to your 
you know, policy actions to say, look, here's what our policies are. Here's how we enforce them. You can see how consistent it is. And if you don't like it, you can take your business elsewhere. Absolutely. All right, Dean, on, a, on an optimistic note, um, what are you looking for most uh, as social media continues to evolve? Um, the metaverse? What, what are you thinking about? What are you excited about? Well, uh, I don't, I don't really know what the metaverse is, so uh, I'll be excited to to see uh, exactly what what it is. Um, you know, I'm I'm really interested in uh, innovation in the space of uh, trying to help people direct people to content that is higher quality, whether it's um, you know more true content or content that screens out uh, extreme views that uh, stigmatize particular groups of people. So. You know, I've always believed that the best way to uh, predict the future is to create it. And so in my research group, I'm working on a tool that will help people understand the differences between the way low quality information sources talk about particular individuals, organizations, and ideas, which we call disinformation attractors, and the way that high quality, high quality uh, uh, news and political information sources talk about these, uh, these disinformation attractors. And the hope is that once you start to build sort of a... Uh, rhetorical or, or identify rather a rhetorical strategy or a set of rhetorical strategies that are consistently applied to these disinformation attractor individuals and organizations, you can start to see it out there in the wild and say, okay, they're talking about, you know, Hunter Biden like this, or they're talking about Hillary Clinton like this, or they're talking about Bill Gates like this. Um, and that's going to raise my flag to say, hey, this is probably going to be uh, some kind of disinformation situation because we've seen this rhetorical strategy before quantitatively. So I don't know whether it's going to work. We're still in the early stages of working on it, but that's the uh, big idea. And so I hope that other folks out there are working on other sort of similar things to help people, you know, put people, you know, point them more toward the good stuff and away from the bad stuff. Right. And that's what we're all hoping for, right? Quality information so we can all make our own decisions. Well, some of us, some people are, some people are overly cool with bad stuff. And we got to work on that too. That's a different issue. But. All right. Well, Dean, you've been, you've been uh, teaching a lot of people around the world about technology and about uh, analytics specifically. Uh, you've been uh, publishing about Python for over a decade now and open source a lot of, uh, you provide a lot of tools for uh, researchers. So I encourage everybody to check out um, your website and check you out. And on Twitter, of course, which is uh, the uh, freelance, right? Yeah, that's, uh, that's where you'll find me on Twitter. That's right. All right. Well, let's connect and keep the conversation going. And thanks so much for jumping on our call today with the Public Diplomat. Thanks, Dean. Great. Yeah, thanks a lot. Much appreciated. All right.